It's Wednesday, September 30th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The New York Times has obtained nearly two decades worth of President Trump's tax returns and found out that he paid only $750 in taxes in 2016 and the same in 2017. And he paid no taxes at all in several previous years. While Trump paints himself as a successful businessman, several of his properties and business ventures were money losers. David Farenthold, reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for how Trump used the tax code to his benefit. Next, a look into how YouTube is fighting misinformation and conspiracy theories. Crucial to its success and also a major source of misinformation spread was its recommendation system. Early on, if you watched a video about the Earth being flat, you would then be recommended tons of similar videos. To stop these sort of videos from getting more exposure, they began to tweak algorithms and teach AI how to identify and downrank these videos. Still, as we saw with conspiracy videos about the coronavirus pandemic, there is much work to be done. Clive Thompson, contributor to Wired, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. What you're talking about is a very small part of taxes, his personal income taxes. He pays millions and millions of dollars in people's, uh, you know, Social Security, Medicare, uh, hires a lot of people who pay personal income taxes, pays, pays a lot in property taxes. Joining us now is David Farenthold, reporter at The Washington Post, covering President Trump's business and conflicts of interest. Thanks for joining us, David. Glad to be here. I wanted to talk a little bit about this big report out of The New York Times. They obtained almost two decades worth of his taxes, his federal taxes, and they found out a lot of different things. Obviously, everybody's kind of heard now that he only paid $750 in taxes in 2016 and 2017, right when he became president and the first year after that. You know, we're hearing a lot of different things, and depending on which lens you view it through, some people are saying, well, yeah, we knew he kind of always did these things, uh, or, you know, it's great he was able to game the system to benefit that way. Other people say, well, he's a liar. He based his whole business empire on falsehoods. So it really depends on how you're going to look at it is what your takeaway is going to be. But David, help us walk through some of that reporting. What did we see in there? I think there's probably three major takeaways. One is that he's paid very little federal income tax, at least in the last few years. The Times said even before he paid $750 a year, and many previous years he paid nothing at all because his businesses had such great big losses. That's one thing. He's paid very little federal income tax. Two, his businesses are doing quite poorly. This was an unprecedented look into the arc of Trump's finances. And what the Times found was that He'd been very successful playing a businessman on TV, on The Apprentice. He made a ton of money from The Apprentice and then basically squandered it, trying to be in real life the person he'd been on TV, trying to be the investor and shrewd businessman that he was supposed to be. He blew a lot of his money on golf courses and hotels that are deeply in the red and have never made money. And the third thing is that there is a huge financial crunch coming for Trump and his business in the next few years. That's because he has a lot of properties that are losing money. And they were losing money before COVID hit. Now they were probably losing more money. And those properties, some of them have really large unpaid loans on them that are going to come due in the next few years. So he's got huge loans to pay. And the properties that those loans are on, not only are they not generating enough profit to pay the loan, they're not even generating a profit. Is any of this illegal in any way? We know there's a lot of loopholes and maneuvering that he was doing, but anything that amounts to being something that could be illegal. From reading the Times story, we don't know enough to say that any of it is illegal. The Times says that there is at least one element of his taxes that he has been embroiled in a long fight with the IRS about whether it was legal. 
Basically, in 2010, Trump asked the IRS for a $73 million tax refund, and the IRS just gave him the $73 million, <laughs> right. and then after it had paid him the money, then went back to figure out whether it was right to have given him the money. So they've been fighting for nine or 10 years now about whether his claim on that refund was correct. Other things that the Times mentioned that seemed to perhaps reach the boundaries of tax law, we don't know that the IRS is investigating any of it. And the little bit that I know about taxes, it's really hard to say whether something is, is violated the law unless you know every single detail. And even then, sometimes you need a tax court to tell you. So how does he do these things? You know, a lot of people might be saying, hey, well, I'm paying my taxes every year. I'm paying more than the $750. A lot of what I'm kind of seeing is, you know, he is claiming that he's losing more that he's making on properties and business ventures. And this really allows him to get away with that. There are some other sort of things, the particular maneuvers that seem to be perhaps questionable legally. But the main thing he does that makes him able to pay very little taxes, he just loses a lot of money. He owns golf courses and hotels that lose money hand over fist every year. And that those losses you know, erase gains he's maybe made from other properties and allow him to reduce his tax bill to nothing or close to it. There's also mm-hmm. been uh, consulting fees that seem to some uh, some consulting fees seem to have been paid to some of his family members. Apparently, on some big business deals, when Trump would get paid, you know, millions of dollars for a licensing fee, say for a overseas Trump hotel, he would count some of that licensing fee as "quote unquote" consulting fees, and then write it off as a business expense. The Times says that at least in some cases, those consulting fees actually went to his own family members, who were at the time also paid salaried members of the Trump organization. So, like Ivanka Trump was both a Trump executive working on the Trump hotel and also being paid as an independent consultant to the same deal. The Times raised a couple of instances in which this could be used as a tax dodge, but it's hard to know if this violated any laws unless you really knew the nitty gritty of it. Democrats are using this as an opportunity to say, we need to know everything about his finances now. As you mentioned, there's a lot of debt that he needs to pay off that is coming soon in, in different forms or fashion. You do cover President Trump as part of looking into the conflicts of interest. I had seen that raised a lot in the last couple of days since we got this reporting. What possible conflicts of interest can we see from the New York Times report? Put yourself in the shoes of, say, you're at the CIA. You're thinking about hiring somebody to be a CIA agent, somebody you're going to give classified information to, trust them to sort of keep the nation secret. And that person you're interviewing says, well, look, I own a huge number of real estate properties. All of them are losing money or a lot of them are losing money. I have huge loans coming due in the next couple of years, and I don't know how I'm going to be able to pay off the loans on my property. So I'm under a huge amount of financial stress right now. Would you hire a person like that to hold classified information? You might not because you recognize their vulnerability to conflicts of interest. Now, we're talking about the president of the United States and who's potentially the most informed, the biggest holder of classified secrets in our government. And if Trump is under that kind of financial leverage where he might be extremely grateful to somebody who would extend the term of his loan, give him some financial help so he can get out of this financial situation, what kind of leverage would that person or that government or that company have over the president if they could bail him out of a fix like that. So I think it's helpful to think about this in terms of hiring. You're hiring somebody for a job. What does it mean that they have this kind of leverage hanging over their head? David Farenthold, reporter at The Washington Post covering President Trump's business and conflicts of interest. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. So if you and I wanted to train a classifier to look for videos where people are super angry, we get, you know, a thousand people and have them look through like 
thousands of videos. And whenever they found someone really angry, they would say, hey, here's a really angry video. And then we'd have this big bucket of thousands of videos that we know have angry people in them because humans looked at them and said, yes, people are angry in those videos. And then we would get the AI to essentially on its own, try and recognize what are the telltale signals of a video that has angry people in it. Joining us now is Clive Thompson, contributor to Wired. Thanks for joining us, Clive. It's good to be here. I wanted to talk about misinformation right now. You know, it's everywhere. And depending on the platform that you might be using, the social media platform or whatnot you might be using, it's all different. It's handled differently from Facebook to Twitter to YouTube. Clive, you wrote an article about how YouTube is trying to calm down conspiracy theories, misinformation, even things that are borderline content, something that's not so obvious. And it really is a huge undertaking that's been years in the making. YouTube has claimed some successes with this already, but there's a lot of work to do. So, Clive, tell us a little bit about kind of the evolution of how YouTube has been combating this. One of the big problems that they had was their recommendation system. So when you watch a YouTube video, it recommends other videos. It kind of became this monster of misinformation spreading when they were really trying to get a lot of clicks, trying to keep people on the yeah. platform. The problem seems to have emerged kind of in the years running up to the 2016 election. YouTube had decided in 2012 that it was going to push for growth so that they would get to the point where people were watching 1 billion hours of YouTube a day, right? And at that point in time in 2012, people were only watching about 100 million hours a day. In comparison, TV, that's like 5 billion. That's a lot more. Even Facebook was like 500 million. So they wanted to have an aggressive growth strategy. And one of the things they did was they worked hard with their recommendation system to try and get it to constantly try and find things that people would want to be absorbed in and to click on, right? And they did a good job. Some outside critics say they did too good a job, that one of the problems that happened was that if you demonstrated that you were interested in like something that was kind of slightly marginal, like the moon landing was faked or something, then it would go, okay, you like conspiracy theories and it would just keep on sending you even crazier and crazier and maybe even dangerous stuff, right? Like, you know, vaccines are a mind control system that you should get away from or ideas eventually became things like QAnon, like, right? right? Like the Pizzagate thing was real, that <laughs> Democrats were child abusers. They made it using... really easy to go down the rabbit hole of, of yeah, any yeah. topic, really. Yeah, exactly. So essentially, the critique that emerged was that you could get in a rabbit hole and the recommendation system would keep on sending you more and more stuff and keeping you glued there. And some evidence suggests that's true. There's been some academic studies. Now, YouTube disputes the quality of those studies, but what those studies found was that at peak points leading up to like 2018, as many in, as one in 10 recommendations were to something that was basically sort of a conspiracy theory, right? And so YouTube internally was becoming aware of external concerns about their recommendation system. And they, and they were sort of thinking about what the responsibility was to deal with it. At one of its peaks, it was kind of interesting. These recommendations really were that engine that was driving more watches. And it became 70% of all of its watch time, just things that were coming yeah. up in these recommendations. So that, I mean, that's amazing. And as you mentioned, Maybe they did a too good a job. Yeah, of yeah, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. You understand recommendations are completely central, and they have been for quite some time to YouTube's overall revenues, right? Because that stat you said, that's exactly right. Seventy percent of everything being watched on YouTube came from someone following a recommendation, right? So yeah, they did this job. They got people really hooked, and there started to be some 
serious concerns. And again, and coming out of the election, 2016 election, there's even more concerns because there's some great research done by some journalists that would talk to these really crazy conspiracy theorists who were like, you know, Hillary Clinton is mentally ill and she's about to die and whatnot. And they were sort of putting this stuff out there and they were just discovering all this incoming traffic coming in. Where's it coming from? And it was all coming from recommendations. So clearly recommendations had a catalytic effect amongst certain fringe populations. You profiled a guy named Mm -hmm. Mark Sargent who was doing a lot of flat earth videos. I think he had at one point more than 1,600 videos. He was getting millions of views. Tell us how it worked out for him because he went through this, was getting a lot of success with his videos. And then when they tweaked those algorithms, really his views kind of turned to a trickle only. You know, he started a couple of years ago and YouTube's recommendation system was key to his success. He has become a globally recognized figure in the flat earth world. And he and everyone in the flat earth world will tell you that recommendations were critical to people finding their stuff. But he was also one of the first people to notice when YouTube rolled out its new system to try and suppress, I guess is a word for it, the frequency with which the recommendation system would recommend conspiratorial content. Because in January of 2019, that's when YouTube rolls out this new system. And he immediately saw the inbound clicks from recommendations just fall off a cliff. One day they're there and one day they're gone and they never came back, basically. So tell us how YouTube adjusted to all of this. You know, Mm -hmm, some of the more fringe stuff, the things that promote violence, all that, you know, a little easier to identify and have those videos removed, all that. But a lot of this stuff, some of this flatter stuff, you know, other conspiracy theories kind of fall into this borderline uh, segment in this gray area where it's not really promoting bad stuff. It's just kind of misinformation. Yeah, yeah. And they went through really a lot of pains, tons of people training AI systems to identify this stuff, questionnaires, people had to view an entire video, then spend minutes kind of dissecting what they saw. Yeah, yeah, There was a lot that went into how they trained their AI systems to figure this stuff out. So what YouTube wanted to do is they wanted to have an automated system that would look at a video and try and predict or figure out or categorize, really classify is what they call it, classify whether or not it was quote unquote borderline, right? So now the way that you train an AI is that you show it a lot of examples of something that humans have pointed to and said, hey, here's an example of it, right? So if you and I wanted to train a classifier to look for videos where people are super angry, we get, you know, a thousand people and have them look through like thousands of videos. And whenever they found someone really angry, they would say, hey, here's a really angry video. And then we'd have this big bucket of thousands of videos that we know have angry people in them because humans looked at them and said, yes, people are angry in those videos. And then we would get the AI to essentially on its own, try and recognize what are the telltale signals of a video that has angry people in it. And it would look at everything from the transcript of what's inside being said inside the video, or maybe the titles of the video or the comments or the other videos that are watched frequently alongside this one. And they would eventually figure out, okay, now I've got a classifier. And if you show me a new video, by looking at all those things, I can tell you, you know, with some confidence, this is 30% likely to be an angry video. This is 100% likely to be an angry video. So that's how you make a classifier. The question is, they wanted to make a classifier that would recognize borderline content. And so the first problem they had was they had to define what is borderline content. Because if it's hate speech, they have a good list of different types of things they regard as hate speech, and they just delete that stuff, right? If it's pornography, they just delete that stuff. But what they were trying to get at were things that were like, You know, someone sort of 
rambling on about how vaccines, they don't really know if they fully trust them and stuff like that. They're not outright saying something that is flat out medical misinformation, but they're just kind of rambling about it. And they're kind of like, well, we don't really want to promote that stuff. That's kind of borderline. So they essentially sat down with their policy people and said, we need to think of 30 or 40 questions that we could ask people that would guide them to sort of look for signals of dodginess, gray area-ness. So they went through their buckets of things that they're concerned about, ranging from things that are close to hate speech, but not things that are close to medical misinformation, but not quite. And they worked at this questionnaire. And then they basically went to a company that has, that employs thousands of humans who rate and classify videos all day long. It's their job. And they said, okay, using this questionnaire, YouTube's going to have you look through videos and look, for example, and you know, we're going to take a video and you're going to rate it based on all these different questions. And they did that with thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of videos and tons of people so that by the end of it, they just had this mountain of videos that had all been sort of rated by people based on these questions intended to guide human judgment to figure out, is this gray area? You did go to YouTube HQ to talk to some of the people there, and they kind of showed you how some of this worked. They've claimed success in this a little bit already since the beginning of last year when they rolled this out. They reduced the number of borderline content that was being pushed out by recommendations. But we're going through the pandemic right now. As soon as the pandemic hit, there was already a bunch of stuff going down. We have the famous pandemic video. There was other Mm -hmm. stuff about vaccines and uh, hydroxychloroquine. Mm -hmm. So what's their kind of response to all this? They've been doing a good job already, but this stuff still gets through. When they released this system in 2019, and they sort of refined it, they released it in January 2019, and over the year they refined it. And then by kind of the summer, by really the fall, they're basically saying, okay, we have, to the best of our ability to figure this out, reduced watch time. If you were to think about all the videos that come from recommendations, the stuff that is like dodgy, that's borderline, we've reduced watch time of that by 70%. So that was their success ratio. And that appears to be borne out roughly by some outside studies. Some academics looked at it. They said, yeah, it might be more like 40, 50%, probably not 70%, but yes, it went down. So that's their success, right? The problem, as you pointed out, is that what started to happen is that there's this new explosion of COVID-related stuff. And they've been working to try and identify the most egregious stuff that they want to just frankly take down. And they've been trying to feed those examples and more borderline examples into their AI, like they didn't just make that AI once, the borderline AI, they actually retrain that. Like they wouldn't tell me the exact amount, but like at least a week, every week or more often, right? So they're constantly feeding it new examples. The problem they're running into, in the opinion of people I spoke to who are looking at YouTube and misinformation in the last few months, they've said, here's the thing. Some people think that recommendations may be less significant now overall for the life and death and virality of kind of BS on YouTube. because what they're saying is people who look at it, they say, well, you know what's happening now? It's less that people are just following the rabbit hole and finding the radicalizing stuff. What's happening is that they're finding about it from a link on Instagram or a link on a hot Reddit post or a link on Facebook, or frankly, even you will find like, you know, in pandemic, thousands and thousands of people on the peripheries of these communities would like do a video saying, you got to go watch pandemic. Here's the link. So it's almost more like, more like organic and grassroots forces that now are propelling some of these really problematic videos to massive virality in like 24 or 48 hours, right? It's not necessarily the recommendation system doing it at this point in time. Clive Thompson, contributor to Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. Good to be here. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. 
leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.